0: So, I want to um, I want to do the following. Uh, we're, this is going to be a uh, this is going to be the final, um, but a, a, albeit a, a shorter class, um, but hopefully a, a nice way to sort of wrap up what we've been talking about up to here uh, with Rabbi Nachman's stories, with the uh, Sipure Ma'asiot of Rabbi Nachman, and uh, we've talked uh, we've we've learned from quite a few of the stories. We've been touching upon what I feel, uh, many feel is the most important of the stories, which is the tale of the seven beggars. Uh, we've been touching upon that. And uh, I wanna try and wrap up tonight by, uh, by bringing these stories into, uh, into the present, uh, bringing them into uh, uh, the here and out. And in doing so, um, in doing so, uh, use one of the stories about Rabbi Nachman himself, which we'll get to in a moment. I'll ask you to turn the page to the first source over here. I know the sources are in Hebrew. I'll translate as we uh, go along. Uh, what was the, the question I want to ask was, what was, the, what was the intent? We've been touching upon this a lot of times. What was Rabbi Nachman's intention in telling these stories? What was what was he trying to convey with these stories? Uh, so we have a little bit uh, from Rabbi Nachman's Talmud, from Rav Nassim, of Nemirov, who, who who tells us a little bit about why we understand these stories or the telling of stories to be such a profound, significant thing, and and I think hopefully we've illustrated that uh, with our interpretations of a number of the stories. But we'll start with source number one. This is from the introduction uh, to Sipure Maasiot, and Rabbi writes like this. This is the introduction to the 13 classical tales, Rabbi Nachman. Shamanu mi kadosh beferish. Rab Nassan says, We heard from Rabbi Nachman's mouth explicitly, we're, we're on, it should say, page 14 on the bottom. It should say page 14 on the bottom. Okay. Source number one. So he said, In every single one of these stories, there is a great intent, there's a great intention, uh, deep understandings to each of these stories. And anyone who changes even a single word of these stories, Anyone who changes an iota from the way that Rabbi Nachman himself told these stories is taking away from the story itself, from what the story is teaching us. That all of these stories are great, wondrous, novel ideas and each one of them contains multitudes, deep depths of understanding and reasoning and teachings. And it's fit to teach them in public. And I know we've touched upon this before, that it's even fit to stand in the front of a shoal and to tell over these stories in public. Because they're great novel ideas and concepts in Torah. Even a person who thinks that they're a great Talmud Chacham, a great Torah scholar, should be learning these stories. Especially in Kabbalistic literature, the writings of Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, one of the greatest expositors of Kabbalah of all time. Even somebody who's extremely learned, who has deep, deep Jewish learning, would be able to get a few of the remazim, a few of the hints, the illusions in these stories, the metaphor for these stories. If they only pay close attention to them. What, what this means to say is that we're not simply telling stories here. That Rabbi Nachman, and this, this is part of the, the basic understanding of Rabbi Nachman's stories, and I say basic, even though it's itself quite a profound idea, the basic understanding of all these stories that Rabbi Nachman was alluding in every one of these stories to deep Kabbalistic and Jewish ideas, it was, as we said two weeks ago, a special way to convey ideas in, that, that could not be expressed in the ordinary way in which Torah is taught, as we would assume with you know, regular Jewish books, the telling of stories was a new way, itself a novelty for how Rabbi Nachman would, t- would teach us Torah and convey the ideas that were in his heart to everybody. And, and Rav Nassim lays it out over here as clearly as possible to say that every single word in the stories is considered, and this is a counterpoint uh, to the position, the academic position that we presented two weeks ago, from Professor Don Miron, who seemed to indicate that we also have to see these stories of works of art, the spontaneous creations of literature that not every detail could be accounted for and mapped out onto a framework of understanding that there are going to be gaps in our understanding. So opposite that is the understanding that no, every single word that Rabbi Nachman said was considered, was directed, was meant to be pointing and gesturing to a specific Torah idea, and over here, a specifically Kabbalistic idea. And the second source over here says about this as well, uh, tacking on to the same uh, to the same idea. piva kadosh We also heard explicitly from Yirachman himself. One of the one of the uh, one of the reasons for opposition. And there was opposition, and, and not just the opposition that we saw from, from various later writers like Simon Dubnov, like historians of Hasidism and, and of Jewish literature. That these were simply tales, and not really such good ones at that, that. That they were essentially meaningless. That they that they were divrei hevel. That Rabbi Nachman was just telling stories, and they were and and it, and it was beneath. At tzaddik, it was beneath the righteous uh, teacher of Torah to be telling such tales of princesses and kings and traveling to distant kingdoms and all these different things that was beneath them. So he says, Rabbi Nachman himself told us that when I'm telling these stories, there are myriad illusions and metaphors and deep understandings of Torah and all of them. And God forbid are these stories just simply stories and to be left at that, children's stories. That's, they're far more than that. Of al-sod The secret of these stories So as much as we could say That there's a point to going ahead And and, and gesturing to these stories As teaching us Torah As alluding to Torah ideas as pregnant with meaning, is that also there's this notion of the esoteric that the stories themselves uh, cannot be fully plumbed. The depths of the stories will always reveal more and more. I mean, great literature is like that, right? Great literature, you go, you go and you read a poem, um, you read a poem, the tenth time you reveal a great poetry, you reveal something uh, new that wasn't there in the first nine times, or you read, uh, you read a great work of art, you listen to, to, to another track or you watch a, another movie for the 10,000th time, and you reveal new things. This happens in, in all great works, right? That you hear something different, or you learn something different from it. So Rabbi Nachman's stories contain that as well. And he says, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's so deep that you have to constantly plumb these depths. And indeed, uh, I, I read that, uh, that the author of Siach Sarfei Kodesh, Um, well, not the author, but but the person who's the source for many of the teachings compiled in Siach Sarfya Kodesh, which I think is an eight-volume set of Breslov teachings. So, uh, so, So Rav Bender, Zechat Sadak of Rachel, the great Brasovich Chassid. So he would teach Sipure Ma'asiot over the period of, of years, of decades, that this would be a regular Seder Halimah, this would be like a regular Torah study uh, vocation for people to go ahead and to sit and to study these stories, which itself is a magnificent thing. Can you imagine Chassidim sitting in a Beit Midrash and learning stories uh, about princesses and kings and dragon slayers and, and, uh, and people hiding out in the forest and, uh, and distant journeys, that this too is Torah, that this Too, as a way of Torah, and just to tie into something that we said in one of the most, uh, in one of the first shiurim, is that is that if you look at our own Torah itself, our own Torah itself. Uh, isn't just simply a collection of laws, but it tells the laws through narrative as well. That uh, we have an entire chumash, we have an entire uh, entire book of the Bible, Bereshit Genesis, that deals with, uh, a- and the beginning of Exodus as well, that, de- that deals with the greatest stories of all time. The redemption of a nation from a house of slavery, something that served as a template for, for, for redemption stories for all the history. The Exodus, something we could refer back to. The story of the Avot, the story of, of the patriarchs and the matriarchs that even the most minute details, right? We we talked about it in a Shabbos here recently that uh, that so many people have a question, like, why is it that the Torah chooses to go ahead and to spend so much shrift speaking about the story of how Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, goes ahead to find a mate for for Yitzchak to find a spouse that gets page that gets. Paragraphs and paragraphs in the Torah, and yet we say, for example, uh, that gufe halachot, important halachot, are only learned out from a slight textual variation. Uh, the the halachot that they're referring to there is the impurity of a sheretz, the impurity of like a lizard, touching like a, a creepy crawly. That's 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 halacha, right? That's that's the stuff of Torah, and yet that's only learned out from from a, a minor detail, or even um, or even vizavachta, a single word in the Torah, is used as the source for many, many of the halachot of kosher animal slaughter, right, how we eat kosher meat, and yet the Torah spends so much time talking about these stories of, of, of the avot, and, and what seemingly mundane detail stories have significant power. The same thing happens in the Talmud as well. Uh, we're, we're used to thinking of the Talmud as simply a collection, not simply, but a collection of laws, of different halachot, and expounding the tzukim to Teach us uh, how Jewish practice How halachic practice And mitzvot should be performed And yet a a broader understanding of, uh, Of the Gemara of the Talmud Shows us that all of this is interspersed on a on, on a beautiful tableau of rabbinic stories. We hear about how the rabbis conducted their uh, their lives. We hear about uh, there's there's humor, there's legend and lore, and all of this is how the halacha is presented. So sometimes the way to convey deep ideas and deep understandings about life is always done through a story. I mentioned also earlier that uh, that it's not for naught that uh, when a, when a teacher gets up and shul to teach Torah, so so she'll usually begin with the story. Or he'll usually begin with the story, something that goes ahead and grabs the listener's ear, and that's certainly what Rabbi Nachman was trying to accomplish, and that's certainly what I think that uh, there was a sense that towards the end of his life, we know that Rabbi Nachman told stories throughout his life, but really from 1806 to his death in 1810. So then, then the story started to become told told an increasing frequency. I did see uh, Professor Tsvimark uh, um, quoted from Dubnov again from this uh, from this historian one. I should say, a great historian, one who's considered an important historian of European Jewry and Jewish history, of Simon Dovnov, who said he ascribed the fact that Rabbi Nachman chose to tell stories, chose to teach Torah in this Uh, mode, Uh, so he said that that had something to do with Rabbi Nachman suffering from the illness which would take his life from tuberculosis. Rabbi Nachman had traveled himself to Lvov, to Lemberg, to go ahead and to receive an unsuccessful surgery for it, so he attributed Rabbi Nachman starting to tell stories to his weakness and the fact that Rabbi Nachman didn't have the energy to teach Torah in his ordinary mode of long uh, Hasidic and and, and deep uh, more traditional kinds of Torah however uh, Tzvi Mark disabuses us of that notion says it's demonstrably incorrect because even on his deathbed or even uh, the final Rosh Hashanah of his life Rabbi Nachman was still telling some of his most profound Torahs which are contained in his magnum opus in the Likute Mo'aran which contains the most standard presentation of Rabbi Nachman's teachings but we see that Rabbi Nachman Saw stories not just as, a, as a, a lighter approach or as a different approach, but maybe as a more, uh, actually a more elevated or more profound, more difficult way of teaching over his Torah, but one that would still resonate with ordinary people. So one of the questions I've been asking with all of these stories mm-hmm. is, well, what does this mean for us now? right what exactly how are we how are we meant to approach the fact that a great Hasidic rabbi is teaching stories and we've tried to plumb the stories for meaning and for, uh, and for the Torahs in them we talked about the tender and uh, talked about the garment of the priest and what that teaches us about the relationship between Jacob and, and, and uh, about Yaakov and Esav we talked a little bit about the seven beggars and, and, uh, and the story they told about remembering uh, before they were born and what that has to do with the Gemaras about a child a soul before before it comes down into the world, how it's, uh, how it's taught, all the Torah there. We have so many examples of where easily we can map out Torah meaning onto these stories. But I want to finish by telling a story about Rabbi Nachman himself. <sighs> Not, and we've, we've seen, there are the classic 13 stories, which are, are longer form fantasies. And we have, uh, we have mashalim, short parables that Rabbi Nachman taught, taught us. We have dreams, Halomot, Chizyonot, visions of Rabbi Nachman. So now I want to tell a story and I want to really finish with the story about Rabbi Nachman himself. Rabbi Nachman is uh, indebted to Rav Nassan, were indebted to Rav of Avnemarav to his great Talmud, who basically recorded as much as possible every single thing that his Rebbe said and preserved it for posterity, preserved it for us. And uh, many of the teachings, for example, of Rabbi Nachman and Likute Moran, are expanded in various different ways. One way in which it's expanded is it's expanded into something that we call Likutei Tefilot, which is a collection of beautiful prayers, the turning of Rabbi Nachman's Torahs into prayer we talked about how a, a main idea of Rabbi Nachman and, and I mean to be very summative in my remarks this evening uh, to what we've done before but, uh, but that Rabbi Nachman is reported to have said that we have to go ahead and we have to turn our Torah so it's not just an intellectual pursuit but we have to turn it into a prayer we have to turn it into something that we could daven for and not just that we have to turn our prayers into etzot we have to turn it into easily accessible ideas even mots even that we could carry with us and that we could use to enrich our lives and lead to a deeper experience of God and experience of our Judaism that we have to turn into etzot. So I think one of the best way in which to take an etza which to take an idea for Rabbi Nachman is a story about Rabbi Nachman himself. And this story comes to us from a, a, a work known as Koch Ve'or, a central breast of work that, that appeared uh, after, re, far after Rabbi Nachman's death. It's written by Rabbi Avram Chazan, a very important breast of teacher who is the son of Rav Nachman of Tolchin, who himself was the main student of Rabbi of Nemerov. So we have here a direct chain to Rabbi Nachman himself. And the story is the following. It's source number three. Again, I'm going to read it in Hebrew I'm going to translate it and then hopefully we'll be able to talk about the story and extract meaning uh, for, from the character of Rabbi Nachman himself. Uh, Rabbi, Nachman, Rabbi Nachman said many things that were jarring to people. One of the things Rabbi Nachman is reported to have said is, Chidush Kamoni Lohaya Meolam. Right? The Rabbi Nachman said, A novelty like me there has never been. Which would strike us at first blush as a, a rather arrogant statement. Uh, however, the more you study of Bresovto, you realize that even taking a face value, it's, act- it's absolutely true tremendous novelty, a new idea, a new revelation, a new thing, um, and, and, and we started off in the very first year a quote from one of the uh, compilers of Rabbi Nachman Stories, the academic compiler of Rabbi Nachman Stories, who told us that before we learn the stories, we have to learn about the man. Before we learn about the stories he told, we have to learn the story of Rabbi Nachman's life, and in, in, 38, sh- in 38 years, Rabbi Nachman certainly lived a life of, with many stories and things that we could learn from. We've talked in the past about his trip to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, how he traveled, journeyed into, uh, into, uh, into cities, into kamenets where Jews weren't allowed and stayed there incognito overnight. So here's a story, a true story about Rabbi Nachman himself. Source number three. So what did, you say? did you say there was a connection between the author of the story and Rav Nelson, did you say? That, so Rav Avram Chazan, who's the author of this work, Koch Veor, is the son of Rav Nachman of Tolchin. And Rav Nachman of Tolchin is the main student of Rav Nelson of Nemerov. So, so basically we have one, Rav Avram, his father, Rab Nachman of Tolchin. Rab Nachman is the main student, three, of Ravnasan, Nassan. And Ravnasan Nassan, four, is the main student of Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. A direct link uh, uh, over 150 years directly back to Rabbi Nachman himself. So, so the traditions, especially in Kochvi, are considered to be as authentic as can be. So here's the story. Pamachat, one time, kshaheya yarid be so this was towards the end of Rabbi Nachman's life before he moved to Uman. He was living in Breslav, where he received the, the title Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. So there was a Yurid. Yurid is modern Hebrew, Yurid means a big sale. Uh, it was a market day. Everybody was coming to bring their wares to the market in the city of Breslov. And it's important to note, Rabbi Nachman, Breslov was more of a city, uh, the Mezboz and many other small Hasidic towns, which were essentially villages that had a Hasidic rabbi establish a court there. Breslov was a city. And someone was running from, uh, was running to the marketplace in order to be involved in buying and selling. I think this is especially appropriate uh, when I was putting this in here during Black Friday, during uh, <laughs> during the shopping, the holiday shopping season. The chalonot rabbeinu zal hayu yotsim lashuk, and the windows of Rabbi Nachman were open to the marketplace. So, if you imagine like this, Rabbi Nachman, the market's outside. Rabbi Nachman's house is at the edge of the marketplace, and the windows to Rabbi Nachman's house were open to the marketplace with all the hustle and bustle of buying and selling. Rabbi Nachman's house was also in a place where you had to pass by. You couldn't avoid it. So this individual as he was running to the marketplace and wanted to get there so nobody would see him or that Rabbi Nachman wouldn't see him. So Rabbi Nachman did see him knocked on his window to the outside and called him. Said, hey, you. Right? It must be that if Rabbi Nachman calls you as you're running to the marketplace, you have no choice but to come in, to go and to speak to Rabbi Nachman. Imagine if we had such an opportunity. It's not proper manners to just simply run by Rabbi Nachman's house, especially if Rabbi Nachman is calling out to you. And when this individual who was previously running into the marketplace called out to Rabbi Nachman who's called Rabbeinu Amar lo Rabbeinu zal Rabbeinu Rabbi Nachman said to him right, what was the thing that he was calling him for? So he looked at him he said "Histakata la shamayim Histakata yom la shamayim Have you looked up at the sky today? Vayomer lo He said No I haven't Kara osa Rabbeinu zal lalachalon vayomer lo So now they're inside Rabbi Nachman takes him to the window From inside the house and says Look out the window And tell me what you see Turning the page And the individual said Well, I see wagons And I see horses And I see other people Running back and forth From place to place Hustle and bustle Rabbi Nachman answered him and said, 50 years from now, there's going to be a very different kind of market, very different kind of sale, big sale day in the market. Everything you see out this window will no longer be here. There'll be other horses there's going to be different horses there's going to be different wagons there's going to be different merchandise and different people lo and I too, said Rabbi Nachman I'm not going to be here and nor are you neither of us are going to be here so today I ask you Ma ata bahul u mutraj shay'in shamayim What are you so busy about What are you so hurried about that you don't have time to look up at the sky Wa yakra at Rabi Khaikal Rabi Nahman called into the anteroom to Rabi Khaikal shayyab ghayr and he said to him Tirah Khaikal ma sha'sit ta ma shafa sharkha He said, Rabbi Chaikel, as he was talking to this individual and gesturing out the window, he says, Rabbi Chaikel, what have you done with your shefa? What have you done with your essence, with your energy, with your sense of self, with your soul, that you no longer have time to look up to the heavens? So there's a lot going on here. What's the connection with Chaikal and the guy outside? So let's start off with a quick historical note, right? We talked about with the tender enda, the story about dressing up in costume, right? The rabbi that was forced, not, not forced, the rabbi was given the option of putting on the priest's garments in order to be able to collect the tzedakah. So just as much as that was the significant aspect of Rabbi Nachman's own life, that he himself talked about wanting to dress up, and wanting to disguise himself and go incognito amongst the masses. So, besides being a true story, a little historical background, Rabbi Chaikol was one of the earliest chassidim of Rabbi Nachman of Breslin. Imagine being an early adopter of Rabbi Nachman of Breslin. You know that Rabbi Nachman got his acquired, acquired his first follower, or his follower acquired him. We say, uh, You have to acquire for yourself a rabbi in Pir Kavu." So the first person that acquired Rabbi Nachman as a rebbe was a certain Reb Shimon on the very day of Rabbi Nachman's marriage at 13 years old. Rabbi Nachman continued to uh, accrue followers, not many, few, and it seems that to be a follower of Rabbi Nachman was quite a difficult thing. The rabbi Nachman was exacting and challenging to his followers. He did not uh, bring them in and amass followers the way that one would expect an ordinary uh, Hasidic rabbi looking to build a court to try and do. Rabbi Nachman uh, would push people away oftentimes. Rabbi Chaika, we know, was one of the earliest followers of Rabbi Nachman. And, uh, and, and we also know we also know that Rabbi Chaikol uh, appears in many other stories of Rabbi Nachman. One other story of Rabbi Nachman and Rabbi Chaikol is that they were at, a, at a, another follower's house and they had gone there for l'chaim's and, uh, and the people in the house had asked Rabbi Nachman for a bracha and Rabbi Nachman said, I have no strength to give a bracha. There's nothing in me to be able to give the blessing to you. Rabbi Chaikol, I want you to go ahead and to give them a bracha. Rabbi Chaikol was wont to give a blessing in front of his rabbi and the story continues that Rabbi Nachman persisted. Rabbi Chaikal gave the bracha. We know that Rabbi Chaikal was a great uh, scholar and a miracle worker and a great, uh, a, 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 a great a Jew of tremendous status in his own right. So that's the Rabbi Chaikal over here that Rabbi Nachman calls to and says, look what you've done. You're so busy. Right? What can you possibly be busy with? You don't look at the heavens. So, I, yeah. He was the one that was walking outside. No, no, there was a different individual walking outside. And Rabbi Nachman is standing at the window to him and he calls out to his close follower the same thing. 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 Exactly, exactly. So, no, don't be sorry at all, of course. So, a few points. So, I think that this story that we just told speaks very much to our generation. We are the generation of the shuk, right? The shuk is is... for many intents and purposes, right in front of us, right? We open our phones and the hustle and bustle of the world is right in front of us. we look outside, we live in the city especially, I'm not just talking about everybody, but specifically to, to us living in Manhattan in 2019, right? And Rabbi Nachman is speaking to the generation of the market, no longer, uh, no longer are we able to go ahead. It used to be that people had market days you could choose when you engaged in commerce, that you could have the option of when to go out to the city to encounter, uh, to encounter the madness that is sometimes the city, the overwhelming aspects of the city, of being confronted with modernity, with all of its complications. So I would say that we are the generation of the Shuk. We're constantly involved in this buying and selling and running back and forth, and a, a point that I want to touch upon in a moment. Rabbeinu, Rabbi Nachman himself also Gestures to the future in a very powerful way, in a poignant way, by saying the first thing he says to this person is in 50 years from now, everything will be different, but it will all be the same. The horses and the wagons are going to turn into cars, and the cars are going to turn into airplanes, and the marketplace is going to have different people with different products that are going to be bought in, but it's all going to be the same thing. It's all going to be buying and selling, people acquiring, and people making money, and people involved in, in all aspects of their Parnas, of earning a living. That will all be the same. Rabbi Nachman has this keen awareness, but we're not going to be there. Right? In a sense, everything, everything revolves in the same sort of way, happens again and again, with slight changes. Right, we might go ahead and find ourselves 50 years from now. I'll ask you guys, what what will it look like? I have this shudder every time I like uh, I think about you know we were like talking about my daughter's bat mitzvah for some odd reason. You know, what we would want, or we were talking about uh, when it comes time when you know wait until late when when she when when she's gonna get a cell phone, and and I always shudder when I think too far into the future because who knows what tomorrow is going to bring? Who knows what the next moment is going to be? Who knows what happens on our way home tonight? Right? Mirza Shem, Hashem watches over us, and we all live and be well, but 50 years from now, that's eons. That's eons. So much happens in a single day now. So much happens in a single year. Life seems to move very fast. And Rabbi Nachman is keenly aware of that, living in a city, living in Breslin. He's so keenly aware that he, he, he throws out this existential point that centers and anchors the story, what's going to be in 50 years from now. Right, That there's so many ways in which we we could gesture to a world that changes but really stays the same. And what do we do in that kind of, in, in that ceaseless circle in which we find ourselves in? What are we supposed to do? Rabbi Nachman says the only way to break from that circle, the only way to break from the way that we walk around here, especially in New York City. It's especially poignant, I think, especially cutting in this kind of a context, right? Who looks at the sky in New York City? Right, the touristy, right? Tour, right. Yeah. When you look up I, I've been looking at it a lot Because of the building next door And you, By the time you're looking up to the top floor right, You're already, okay, that's the sky right? And today was an especially dour day But I want to say the first, the first thing Is that we should take Rabbi Nachman's advice And we can explain And we will explain what he means by looking up at the sky But even without understanding To take the advice to look up at the sky every day to pause from this cycle, the way that the way that this story uh, geometrically, the way that the story is mapped out is that there's a circular effect and then the way to get out of that circular effect is to look up. The way to get out of this ceaseless endless kind of ratzo vishov, this running and returning and coming back and forth Did you look up at the sky today? What powerful simple advice that Rabin Nachman gave, but, but what exactly are we supposed to be getting when we look up at the sky? Next point I want to say is that uh, besides the fact that this is different than all the stories and all the mashalim, the metaphors and parables and dreams that we've talked about up to now, this is a story about Rabbi Nachman himself. And I mentioned in the second shir that, that the language that we call these stories sipure ma'asyot is also the language which we should call our story. Something amazing happens to us, sipure ma'asyot, my friend. Something we had a, an interesting anecdote or an interesting event. right? That that we have these kind of stories to ourselves. It's important to pause not just to look at the heaven, but to look at ourselves and say, oh, this is a story we went over, to tell ourselves the narratives of our own life. And that's why we're telling a story about Rabbi Nachman himself, and Rabbi Chaikal is a real person, Rabbi Nachman is a real person, the Yerid in Breslov, the market in Breslov is a real thing that really happened. And, 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 and as we move away, as we oscillate a little bit from fantasies of kings and queens and beggars and orphans in the forest and, and far off lands and, and countries that are filled with laughter and jokes, and, and kings behind curtains that at the end of all of that we also have real life and real life is a story as well. Real life contains that narrative function as well. So what's the first aspect of the story that I want to point to? Is the fact that that we'll take every word here to be significant as well. We find him, we find this individual unnamed running to the shuk, running to the yirid. Right? And, and running has, uh, running, running is located in particularly in a particular place in Jewish in Jewish thought. For example, two sources that I'll say to you guys. The first is is that we we say a right? We we say Al we confess on Yom Kippur, on Ritzat Raglayim Lahara, on running to do bad. Right? That sometimes if we if if we have a lust after something, we run after it. Or sometimes if we want to go ahead and slake some desire, we run after it. Or if we have some particularly juicy bit of lush and horror, of, of evil speech, of gossip or slander to share, we run to go ahead and to do it. And how often do we find ourselves running to do something good? Running to do a mitzvah. I speak about myself primarily that sometimes to get up to pray or sometimes to get out to go learn Torah or sometimes to get myself off the couch and to sit and to properly learn Torah. So, so that's sluggish. That's, that, that's slow. And it takes us. Forget running. It takes us effort even to walk to it. That in Jewish life there seems to be this valence between: to what do we apply alacrity? To what do we apply uh, merits? To what do we apply effort? And to what do we go ahead and say this is done slowly? Right? This kind of running. This kind of running is something that is a significant idea. We say in Pirkei Avot at the very end of Pirkei Avot, we say that we have to be Ratzlitzvi have right? we have to be as light as an eagle we have to be kitzvi, as fleet as a deer to do the will of God in heaven that the ideal mode of Jewish practice is also one in which we're doing things with vigor we're doing things with, with effort mitzvah comes to, to your hands you should do it right away right? Uh, don't put off till tomorrow what you could do today run to it Move to it. Always be going ahead to try and fulfill the will of God in heaven. Be as fleet as a deer. We also find, for example, in Pur Kavod as well. I shouldn't just say I'm going to run, right? It's never enough. I shouldn't just run to do something small. Okay, I'll go ahead, I'll do this small mitzvah and I'll run to it and I'll show them doing it with vigor and effort and verve. But I should go ahead and be running to a small mitzvah like I'm running to a big mitzvah. Right? Not just should I say for the very big things, okay, I'll run to that, but even for the small mitzvah in our life, we have to apply this principle, this concept of doing things with energy, doing things with vigor, doing things with speed. Right? We, and if we don't do it, if we don't do it, we allow sometimes, <laughs> that our mitzvot in our spiritual life becomes chamitz that it becomes something leavened, it becomes something where time has that effect that it always has, that it makes things ossified, it makes things calcified, it makes things grow old and, and lose, their, uh, lose their shine. When we run to something, when we're running to a mitzvah kala kibach hamura, so we accomplish something special in our performance of mitzvot. I want to quote to you something beautiful about the, the fact that speed, is such an important aspect of modern life. This comes from Milan Kundera. Uh, he was a Czech writer, apparently a perennial, uh, a perennial nominee or perennial consideration for the Nobel Prize. He wrote a book called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. So I have the Hebrew quote over here. It comes from Ravokhan Anir's book again. I didn't find this on my own. And he says something amazing. He says, ha mihirut. adam <laughs> He says the speed of modern life is a kind of ecstasy, a kind of, um, I don't know how I would phrase this differently, an ecstasy that the technological re- revolution has given to modern life, the gift of the technological revolution. We look around us, everything is done fast. You don't respond to the email within 24 hours, Ove. Right? The, the chain has already taken off without you. You miss the train, there's not another one, another six minutes and that feels like eons mm. you go ahead and you you want to rush from place to place from thing to thing from meeting to meeting we're always running especially in this city people don't even it's a, you know I'll tell you something amazing my experience as a rabbi in this city you could pass people that that you literally just spoke to like an hour ago you could pass them on uh, on 72nd street and you don't even look at each other you just go right past just it was so fast everything is just moving Right? It's only the tourists, for example, that stop right in the middle of, of Broadway and, and, and you have to like dart around them because God forbid anybody should walk a step slower. Right? Everything is done with this kind of ecstasy. It is a kind of thing that we know right, that as things speed up, we start to lose ourselves. In religious, in religious practice, that speed sometimes allows us to lose ourselves to become subsumed in God. But modernity and technology has afforded us the ability to become subsumed in ourselves. To go ahead and to say, we're moving so fast. This is what Rabbi Nachman is describing by the Yerid and Breslov. The, the effect of commerce, of buying and selling and money changing. I almost have like a montage from, like from like a Darren Arnavsky movie, where you have like, you know, cha-ching, and then a shot of money, and then a shot of people, of hands, right? The speed in which, thing is, in which things are moving, right? It feels like one day the markets are up, the markets are down. The same thing that happens in 2019, Rabbi Nachman is describing in 1806 in Breslov. Mm-hmm. Right? That kind of speed Rabbi Nachman sees as the hallmark of modern life. Rabbi Nachman says this will only continue, this will only uh, this will only intensify as time goes on. It's it, it speaks directly to our experience of modern life. The Yurid and Breslov is 72nd Street outside in 2019, is, 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 is running into a Walmart on Black Friday, is running to get tickets at, uh, at TKTS to, before anybody else, is running to the next meeting, is hopping on a subway, getting in an Uber, getting in a tax in order to make the next thing. Our lives are filled with constant running, constant effort. If you hear one of the main complaints in modern life, Right? People don't realize that it has this kind of effect on us is that is the, the, the tiredness of not being able to stop. and That if you do stop, if you do take a break, you feel like you're falling behind. Rabbi Nachman saw this in the Shuk of Rasul. That's what it represents over here. Now, the second element of the story that I think is really important is what's the rabbinic perception? What's the Torah's perception of that marketplace? Is the Torah's perception of that marketplace with an open window or is it with a closed window? I think it's rather significant that Rabbi Nachman's house is one that faces directly to the shuk. We have indeed rabbinic models of exactly the opposite. How do we know? I'll give you one ex- excuse me, One example. One example comes from a testimony of Rav Yisrael Mishklov. Rav Yisrael Mishklov was one of the main talmidim, the main students of the Vilna Gon. The Vilnagon, of course, one of the greatest Kabbalists and rabbis of, of all time, commentary uh, on all the Shulchan Aruch and 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 created a, a whole new way of Torah, which is associated deeply with the Litvish counter-Hasidic, the, the opposite of the Hasidic, uh, uh, and, and even the Metnagdic approach, the approach which was in opposition intensely sometimes to Hasidim like Rabbi Nachman and what they represented. So Rav Shlov uh, sets up in a, a, an important dichotomy, testifies that in Vilna, the Vilna Gaon would sit cloistered in his, in his cloys in his, uh, in his study room, with all the windows closed and the curtains drawn and a candle in front of him, and that's how he would learn Torah. There is indeed a model of learning Torah where there are no windows. Now, the Gemara tells us that a person should endeavor, the Talmud tells the person should endeavor to pray in a big Knesset that has windows, a big Knesset that is open to the outside. Here, beautifully so. And we could watch the people coming and going, and we could see the world outside as we pray. However, if much of Jewish history wasn't like that. If anybody, we've talked about this before, if anybody takes a trip to Krakow, so you'll see the 16th century synagogue of the Ramah, and the Ramah's synagogue has no windows, and uh, that's indeed for another reason, for protection as well, that we need to be cloistered at times. We need to close ourselves off. We need to go ahead, as some people would say, uh, this is the dichotomy of the way which we understand that Noah is told to go into the Teva, Noah Noah goes into the ark, and it says that taasa Teva, that there needs to be a tzohar. And what's the tzohar that's in the teva? So some people say Rashi tells us. Some say it was a window in the teva, a window in the closed ark that opened up to the outside world, which was so air, which was stormy and turbulent outside. And some people say it was an internal light. Was it the window of Rabbi Nachman that opens up to the Shuk in Braslav, or is it the light of the candle? of the Vilna Gaon, learning in daytime. Now, those represent two, I would say, opposite approaches to how the rabbinic world looks out onto the marketplace, looks out into the world outside with the running and returning, but I think that they also represent the different times. There's times that we need to be cloistered, there's times we need to close ourselves off, and there's times that we need to open ourselves up. So Rabbi Nachman chose at this point to have his house open to the marketplace with the window open. Now, that also reflects, it brings to mind, uh, uh, in one of the stories in, in, uh, about Rav Kook, we know that Rav Kook lived in Yafo when he first came to Israel in the, early, uh, in the early 20th century. He was the rabbi of Yafo, and we know that Rav Kook lived in a house that had a window that was open to, that had a view of the sea, that had a view of the Mediterranean Sea. And it was there that Rav Kook wrote some of his most important works. When I read this description of Rav Kook that the Nazir gives us, one of Rav Kook's main Talmidim, I said, oh, Rabbi Nachman. And we know we've already talked about Rav, Kook, Rav Kook's uh, the soul affinity between Rav Kook and Rabbi Nachman. The, the reported statement Rav Kook, Rav Kook was an aspect of the soul of Rabbi Nachman that in, in, a, in a later time. So, so we find this, this ability to open himself up and we find that a shul I, ideally should be opened out to the outside world. It should have lights, right? That's a, it should have this ability to be accessible to the outside world. And we find Rabbi Nachman's windows opened out to the world. His Torah gains, it's manik. It, it gains depth, it gains profundity, it gains importance when it's in conversation, when it's opened out to the world, when it's in dialogue with the world. And it tells us how Rabbi Nachman sees perhaps the point of telling these stories is that stories are also the language of the world. Hasidic Torahs with deep Kabbalistic, open Kabbalistic illusions and deep Torah ideas is not something that's always accessible. Telling the stories was a window to the world, was a window for people to access these ideas in a different form. Rabbi Nachman throwing open the window or the king revealing uh, himself behind the curtain. So the stories were a way to open up the window. So. What about the looking into the heavens is that we have to always remember, we have to always remember that there's what we see in front of us, especially here, it's tall buildings that somehow sometimes block out the light. But it's also important to recognize that even, even in the city, even in Breslau, in the marketplace, even here in New York City, so we still have the same sky on top of us as everybody else. We still have the same God on top of us as everybody else. Sometimes we'll hear from people, I have to go out to the wilderness in order to experience God. Or I have to go and separate myself from civilization to experience a profound religious moment. Rabbi Nachman tells us that this is accessible at any moment. The simple act of looking up to the heavens says, right? it's almost, right? not just to the mountains, but beyond, like King David said. right? I, I, I raise my eyes, and, and, and we could either raise our eyes in a plaintive moor, where's my help going to come from? Right? There's times we look up to the heavens and, and you know, God, you, right? God Almighty, please help me. Right? And there's times we look up to the heavens in awe. And we look up and we do this at the beginning of every month that Jews go ahead and they, they look up at the moon. And we, we orient ourselves. We reorient ourselves with the celestial bodies. We reorient ourselves constantly. We follow the moon and the waxing and waning of it informs our waxing and waning of time. A keen, a keen understanding of how time works and how the world works can only be available sometimes when we go ahead and we look beyond. And Looking up to the sky is not just looking up at the firmament of, of the physical heavens, but looking up at the sky to Avinu Shabbat Shamayim, to God thou art in, who, who is in heaven. Right To be able to go ahead and to break the circle and to look up as, as an escape hatch. And the final thing that I want to say is that Rabbi Nachman wrote in Likut Maoran, and this is a, in Ha'ara number five, and we're going to conclude with this. Rabbi Nachman wrote, Masha, olam The fact that the world is distant from God Almighty, what would you expect the rabbi to finish this statement with, right? Why is the world distant from God? Blank. So Rabbi Nachman says, it's not what you think it is. The reason people can't come close to something transcendent. With all this speed, with all the ecstasy of modern life and the arid and the market and running and returning, the reason he writes elsewhere that people are distant from God or distant from spirituality is because they don't take a moment to be Miyashiv, to have Yishuv to settle themselves, to stop for a moment, This is the profundity of the message Rabbi Nachman is saying to this individual who is running to the marketplace. This is the profundity of the message that Rabbi Nachman is saying to us who are running to answer the next email, who are running to go ahead and to make the next appointment, who are running to go ahead and to fill out the list of the 10,000 things that we do to fairway, and then we have to go ahead and hit the train at the right time. Rabbi Nachman says, pause. Look at all these people moving so fast and not pausing. Look at all these people running from place to place and not stopping. Look at the speed at which everybody is doing everything and not taking a moment to consider what am I and what am I doing here. It's a deeply religious act, Rabbi Nachman says, to pause and to look up at the heavens. The minute of pause, that moment, and it could be as much as five seconds, that's a moment of connecting with something beyond the arid, something beyond the running that that. that that typifies modern life. The fact that people are distant from God. And don't come close to God. It's because they're they're so concerned and they're so caught up in so many other things. They're so busy. They never settle themselves. One of the beautiful aspects of modern life, and I know the criticisms of it, is this mindfulness movement. And before we speak to somebody, pausing, yishavadat, considering the words that come out of my mouth. Before learning Torah, pausing, what exactly am I hoping to accomplish by teaching Torah or learning Torah? Going out and davening or making a bracha. Thinking slowly, moving slowly can be the most profound religious act. And it could be signified in something as small as looking up into the heavens. But there's an even deeper level here, which I think connects with the idea of telling stories. In order to tell a story, so you have to say, come around now and hear my tale. Sit down, settle down, enjoy, listen to something, take a moment. Right? It's, I feel pathetic that we didn't even, I, wasn't even, I even, wasn't even confident enough to say over some of the longer stories. of We mostly sufficed in the Yishirim with the shorter stories of Revi Nachman because, because you know, we'll lose interest. What if people lose interest? And we do, right? So now we have a new movement. Right? That's telling the modern world in a secular format, mindfulness. Pause for a second. Take a deep breath. Meditate. Settle yourself. Or as Rabbi Nachman would tell us, <laughs> have you looked for something beyond? Have you engaged in your imagination? Have you looked beyond the shuk? Have you looked beyond the marketplace? And hopefully being able to pause and to listen to stories that awaken us, that jolt us and say for a moment, just stop and be. And listen to a story. So hopefully by doing so, we'll be able to not be Rachok, but we'll be close to Hashem. And we'll be able to, to to grow closer to that which is transcendent, to the service of God. And I give us all a bracha that we should have that We should continue to tell stories. We should continue to hear stories. We should be able to learn from our great Sadiqim and Sadaqaniyot, from our tradition. The fact that this is part of it is such a wondrous thing that we'll be able to go ahead and to bring these messages closer into our lives. And hopefully, hopefully, with all of that, we'll be able to have true of Hadat, true equanimity, true pause, true mindfulness of that which is above us. We'll be able to look at the heavens today and answer in the affirmative. Amen. Thank you.